Hi, I'm George Strayton, screenwriter of Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hello, everyone. This is Genretainment at SciFiPulseRadio.com. I'm your host, Marks. I'm running the show solo today. Julie is in the middle of rehearsals for a play she's going to be in, but don't worry, she'll be back next week. Now, today on Genretainment, we speak to award-winning role-playing game designer and writer, Monty Cook. Cook tells us about how he started in the game industry and would eventually co-create Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition, a.k.a. D20, pretty much the most famous RPG rule system ever created. He talks about his fiction writing, his upcoming web series, Geek Seekers, which investigates the paranormal, his new upcoming game, which raised over half a million dollars in a Kickstarter campaign, wow, and much more. Now, what you heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand, a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. Now, you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Before we get to the interview, I want to let everyone know about our guests next week. We'll be speaking with producers and actors Stephanie Thorpe and Paula Rhodes. They recently acquired the rights to the 35-year-old comic book series, ElfQuest. Now, they grabbed a lot of attention on the web when they made ElfQuest a fan imagining, and now even more as they move forward to make official ElfQuest stories. Also next week, we'll be speaking to Barry Dodd, the co-creator of the popular Maine-based web series, Ragged Isle. We learn more about this mystery suspense web series and talk to Dodd about his views of the future of independent web series. Now let's get started with our featured interview with Monty Cook. listening to John Retainment, and today we are speaking with Monty Cook, who is a role-playing game designer that if you play D&D or, or a lot of other pen and paper role-playing games, you surely know his work. So let's let's go ahead. Can you introduce yourself, please? Hey, I'm, I'm Monty Cook, and uh, I've been a role-playing game designer for 25 years now, uh, which means I've never had a real job. <laughs> That's a real job. If you get paid, it's real, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I tell my mom. <laughs> well, how'd you get into game writing? Um, I actually started when I was still in college. I'd been a gamer, obviously, since uh, I was I was about ten years old. But I was, I, you know, I'd started like everyone else. I started with D and D, played a lot of different games, and in college was playing a game called Rollmaster, which was put out by a company called Iron Crown Enterprises. And kind of through just circumstance, I, I kind of got in touch with the guys there at that company, a small little company in Virginia, and found out that they were looking for somebody to write a book. Um, they sort of had the book already all planned out. They just needed a writer for it. And I, I jumped at the chance, uh, sent them some samples of my stuff, and they said, go ahead. So my first book was called Creatures and Treasures 2. I'm curious, whenever you write a role-playing game book, is it for each book that you write, are you always writing like both the fiction element and like the background and also the rules? Or are there some yes. books that you do one or the other? It's pretty rare that you would do one or the other. Uh, being a role-playing game designer means... You know, you have to sort of be a creative writer, but you also have to know what you're doing as far as the rules go. You know, it's it's sometimes I refer to it as creative technical writing because it's it is very technical. But at the same time, you know, you're talking about dragons and other made up stuff, you know, mm -hmm. your first work with that game was Iron Crown, correct? Uh, that company was Iron Crown, right? Uh -huh. 
Now, you worked for the Rowmaster and Champion lines, and I think there's another book you worked for at some point, which I'm not familiar with, so I was kind of curious, A Dark Space? That was my second book, yeah. That was also from Iron Crown. Uh, at the time, uh, Iron Crown had two different, well, they had multiple games, but but they had these two different games. One was called Rollmaster, which was fantasy, kind of their version of D&D, really. And then um, Space Master, which was, you know, their science fiction game. And so Dark Space was combining the two elements. It was sort of like Lovecraft stuff in space with magic. Ah, that sounds interesting. Whatever happened to that game? Like, I guess it just ceased after a while. Yeah. Um, you know, the company kind of fell on hard times many years later. All that stuff is is out of print now. Now, how did you make the transition from Iron Crown over to TSR, where you would work on Dungeon Dragons? So I, I, I worked for Iron Crown for a couple of years, like you said, on Rollmaster and Champions. And then I worked freelance for quite a while. I started doing freelance for TSR. I worked uh, a lot on their they – um, they used to have the Marvel Superheroes license, and so I did a lot of stuff for them. And then one day I just got a phone call. It was basically, uh, you know, do you want to you want to come work for TSR? And at the time, they were the big thing. You know, they were they were the number one company. They were the Dungeons and Dragons company. You know, so at the very least, if nothing else, I wanted to at least go see the place. <laughs> um, so when they said, do you want to come in for this, you know, see about this job, I, I jumped at the chance and, and uh, worked for. TSR from 94 to 97 until they were actually bought out by a company called Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. With Dungeon Dragons, I didn't realize you worked on the Marvel superhero game line. That was always one of my favorites. That's probably still my favorite Marvel game rule system for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a reason why you didn't know that I worked on it, and that's because I worked on that line for well over a year. And then right when um, that stuff was supposed to start coming out and start getting published, uh, the stuff that I had worked on, the Marvel canceled the license. And so I had, none of it actually ever saw the light of day. So that uh, <laughs> kind of sucks, to be honest, because um, there was a lot of work there. But at least they paid me for it. Oh, yeah. Do you mind if I ask what it was? Sure. Um, I had worked on... Um, well, I'd done a few small things, but the the big thing was we were going to do this huge box set that was like everything that Marvel did in space. So it was, you know, the Guardians and the Galaxy. And I don't know if you're a big Marvel fan, but, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, the Kree, Skrull, War, you know, all that stuff, uh, all in one big box. It was going to be really cool. <laughs> that sounds cool. I remember one of my favorite modules was a three-part one with galactus split in different uh-huh. parts throughout and i remember touched, that yeah and they touched on all the different cosmic storylines like the asgardian gods and, and such um yeah this is kind of a silly question but I'm, I'm always kind of curious because i know at least the players we always debate about it but did you guys ever get in like debates uh friendly debates about like oh no this character should be stronger or faster or whatever than this character because of whatever happened in whatever comic book <laughs> <laughs> No, there were there were discussions like that. I wasn't in on a lot of them because at the time when I was working in Marvel, I was working as a freelancer, so I wasn't actually in the office. But you know, there would be lots of times where you know I'd stat up a 
character, you know, I don't know, Drax the Destroyer or somebody like that. And somebody would say, well, you made him, you know, stronger than Thor. He shouldn't be stronger than Thor. You know, yeah, that kind of stuff would happen. (laughs) It's pretty geeky, really. (laughs) Now, uh, so you went on for Dungeon Dragons and done a lot of writing for them for that game system and uh, game world. I know like Planescape, for example, is a line that you wrote Mm -hmm. quite a bit for. Can you explain a little bit how you got involved in that and what you wrote? Um, Sure. Basically, you know, I like I said, I showed up there at about 1994, and that's right when this brand new setting for D&D came out called Planescape, which was, you know, all about exploring the multiple planes of existence and, you know, going to heaven and hell and the ethereal plane and everything and it was just it was done so well and it was filled with art by this guy named tony dieter lizzie which was beautiful and the entire product line was was written in this sort of particular sort of style and i fell in love with it right away the box set like came out like the week that i started at the company and i just said i i've got to get involved in this and Went on to to kind of join that team. At the time, TSR had a lot of different settings. You know, there was the Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk and all these things. And uh, each one of them had a group within the company. And so I, I, I pushed really hard to join the Planescape group and became one of the, the main, kind of the main two or three writers in that group. And that was a great time. Uh, great people, super creative. I still think that some of the Planescape stuff is is some of the most creative stuff that that's been put out. Really, I know it's a lot of it's really amazing artwork and such that were in the books. Yeah. Now you also, I believe, wrote for Dark Matter. I, I did. Yeah, um, Dark Matter was a, a a game that Wolfgang Bauer and I created while we were at. Uh, Wizards of the Coast, and basically that's a sort of investigate the paranormal, uh, conspiracies, X-Files kind of thing. I wrote a novel for that game as well called Of Aged Angels that came out, I guess it would have been the early 2000s. Now now that you mentioned that, I do know you went to, like, you graduated from the Clarion West Writers Workshop, and you've you've done some writing since then. Can you tell us a little bit about the books you wrote or the stories you've written and a little bit about that transition from doing technical fiction to like fiction? Right. Well, you know, it's, it's pretty different. I mean, obviously you're, you know, you're still dealing with, with imaginative, fantastical stuff, but you know, basically when you're writing for role-playing game stuff, it's like you're giving the tools to somebody else so that they can be the storyteller. But when you're writing fiction, you're the storyteller. And so it's a very kind of different approach to stories. Um, but I like them both very much. And uh, I, I've written two novels, um, Of Aged Angels, which I mentioned, and I also wrote a, a fantasy novel called The Glass Prison, uh, also published by Wizards of the Coast, Uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, since then, I've mostly concentrated on short fiction. I've been writing short stories and published in anthologies and whatnot over the years. I just very, very recently, within the last couple of weeks, published a a collection of my short fiction called Small Matters. And uh, that came up from Stonebox Press. 
and you can get that on Amazon and, and elsewhere. But uh, it's just it's it's a passion of mine. You know, game design's always sort of been my main focus, but but fiction is also something that I really love. Mm-hmm. I noticed you wrote a Call of Cthulhu fiction series for a while, uh, Chandler Chronicles, I believe. That's right. Yeah, actually, the Chandler Chronicles is still going on. There's a, a trade magazine in the game industry, and I write a a monthly kind of ongoing series it's it's very episodic you know about a guy investigating cthulhu-esque stuff um it's been going on for quite a while it's a lot of fun uh lovecraft stuff is is always been a passion of mine too i was wondering about that because you also wrote for the d20 version of call of cthulhu mm-hmm. that's right and between that and like dark space having some elements i was wondering how much influence lovecraft has on your writing yeah, you know, somehow, even when I'm writing stuff that's not supposed to have any, you know, Lovecraftian elements, it just kind of worms its way in sometimes. <laughs> well, what's your favorite thing about Lovecraft stories? Um, you know, that's that's a hard question, but I guess it would be sort of this this idea that you're really coming upon something truly alien. Um, I'm kind of fascinated by that by the the horror of of realizing that there are these things out there that are practically beyond our comprehension and you know they're so far above us that you know we're we're nothing to them um that kind of lovecraftian horror is really fascinating and and horrifying to me when we talk about how uh tsr transitioned from like advanced D to over to third edition and and what part you played in that Sure. Um, so, like I said, uh, TSR got bought out by Wizards of the Coast in about 1997. Mm-hmm. And right around that same time, we uh, we decided that we wanted to put out a new edition of D&D. It had been quite a while. And, and to be honest, you know, sales were kind of flagging. Um, and, in, you know, and that's part of the reason why TSR got bought out was because it, it wasn't doing so well financially. So we, you know, thought a new edition would re-energize the game. And... We, you know, the, there had been already, you know, two editions, and the the differences between first edition and second edition were not really that great. I mean, they seemed big at the time, but but in truth, the game hadn't really changed much uh, in a long time. And so we kind of set it upon ourselves to just make D&D the best game that we could. And that meant actually um, making sort of some major revisions. We tried very hard to keep to the spirit of the game, um, and keep a lot of the familiar elements, but you know we sort of made you know we 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 took everything and we created what we called the core mechanic, which was basically you roll a twenty sided die and you're gonna add a number to it, and you're always looking for high numbers mm-hmm. and that seems pretty basic, but you know in first and second edition d and d you know every mechanic saving throws worked differently than attack rolls and ability checks were something different yet again and sometimes you wanted high numbers sometimes you wanted low numbers it was um, kind of all over the board and so we streamlined the game in that way codified the rules a little bit more spent about three years working on that process it was it was me and uh, a couple of other designers named jonathan tweet and skip williams and there were other people involved uh as well but we were the three main designers and uh, and so third edition came out in 2000 and did pretty well. Um, <laughs> <what>? <laughs> I think that's <laughs> an understatement, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
Yeah, well, um, yeah, those those are good times. Um, we also uh, the company. When I say we, I mean I mean the company Wizards of the Coast created something called we we called the D twenty system, which was basically the the sort of the core of of third edition D and D and those rules, and we made that open content so that basically so other people could come in, other designers and developers, and use that same system and could publish their own um, material, you know, their own adventures, their own source books, and have it be compatible with this, you know, with clearly the most popular role-playing game that was out there at the time. And so uh, that was really a boon to the entire game industry. A lot of people were putting out D20 system modules. And in fact, that's what I did. In, in 2001, I left Wizards of the Coast and I started my own D20 uh, design studio called Melhavik Press, and uh, Melhavik Press still exists. Uh, we haven't put out any new products since about 2007, I think. But uh, it was it was great. Put out a lot of products. I'm really really proud of in those uh, six or so years. And that was revolutionary in a way of doing the open gaming uh, license. Who decided that uh, Wizards of Coast to, to, to was- take the approach? Sort of the brainchild of a guy named Ryan Dancy, who was the business manager of D&D at the time. And, um, you know, it was it was not an easy sell in the company. A lot of people thought, you know, because the, the idea was, you know, wait a minute. We don't want other people putting out D&D stuff. We put out D&D stuff, right? We're going to be creating competition. Mm-hmm. But it it really actually was, I think, a very good, it was very good for the game. It was very good for the industry. It was just a good thing overall, you know, because I don't think that, that it was, I don't think it created competition. It just, it created more interesting material out there. It, it drew more people in much more so than it, you know, drove people away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause if people are buying those other products, then they do that. They have to buy Wizards of the Coast first, <laughs> right? And it's going to keep them interested, yeah. right? And it's it's going to keep them coming back and always, you know, rather than moving on to some other completely different game or you know, stopping playing role playing games altogether. It's going to keep them interested, and they're going to always be interested in what Wizards is doing as well as you know whatever other D twenty companies. So I think it was really good for the game. Now, did you at all help with three point five, or were you did you leave by then? Um, I had left by then. Um, so, you know, 3.5 was a revision of, of third edition D&D and it, you know, it was still built on what we had created, but um, I wasn't actually a part of the, of the changes. It's a collaborative process, obviously. And, and I'm just kind of curious, you know, what things in D20 did you want to do that, that weren't allowed or, or ended up not making the cut uh, I'm just kind of curious. <laughs> you know, uh, that's it's been so long. Um, you know, I, I I do remember that. You know, remember I said that the change between first and second edition wasn't that dramatic, and so I remember thinking that on the team, you know, when we first got started working on third edition, that I would be the guy who would, you know, my role would sort of be the guy who just came up with the crazy ideas. And then the more conservative people would say, no, 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 we can't do that. Right. And so I started pitching these kind of crazy ideas. Let's, let's bring back the barbarian class. Right. And let's, you know, and I, you know, do all these things that at, at the time I thought were, were very kind of out there. 
And everything that I pitched, people would be like, yeah, okay, let's do that. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And I realized, oh, my God, you know, no one is, like, censoring me. I'm going to have to start censoring myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, there's no safety net there. You know, uh, there, were, there weren't a lot of, like, major things. I think that at one point, I and another designer had kind of proposed this idea for a, a brand-new class that I think we were going to call it the spirit master. Uh, the spirit master, rather than having just normal spells like a wizard, he would he had this little spirit companion that would go off, you know, into the ether or whatever, and kind of retrieve these spells and these powers and stuff and bring them to his master. Uh, so your powers would change all the time, and I think. I thought that was a really interesting concept, but the thing was, uh, we just determined that it, it was just too random, um, and you didn't want a, a core class like that that was just so so very random, with you know major fluctuations in power every day. So that didn't make it. But I can't really think of any really major things like that. Too many that you know ended up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Now you have a role playing game you're working on or developing right now that you did a Kickstarter campaign for not too long ago. That's right. Yes, and it was a very successful Kickstarter campaign. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the game is Numenera, and it is a a science fantasy game set in the very, very, very far future. And the idea is is that it's so far in the future that there have been all these civilizations that have kind of risen and fallen on earth you know and they've you know rose to great heights and and had fantastic technology but then you know eventually the society faded and and whatnot and kind of left ruins behind and then another one rose to prominence and then that one faded and this has happened a successive number of times and so it's so far in the future that now there's 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 people who kind of find all these fantastical ruins and all these remnants of these past civilizations. And so even though they themselves have only sort of a medieval level of technology, they can go and explore these ancient places and find these incredibly advanced uh, these things. And, you know, Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that's kind of the premise of Numenera is that it's, it, it feels like a fantasy game because these people are finding these amazing things. And to them, it's like magic, um, you know, but it's actually things like nanotechnology and, you know, creatures formed through bioengineering and, and all these things. But to them, it's just, you know, they, they can't possibly begin to explain it and they can just barely make it work. And so that's that's the premise of Numenera. The game itself is meant to be fairly simplistic as far as the rules go and very story driven. The mechanics kind of allow for the game master to focus more on the story than the rules. Can you give an example? Uh, I'm of of the rules, like uh, an example of how the rules. Oh, work. right. So, for example, one of the main rules is uh, this thing called GM intrusion. And GM Intrusion allows the Game Master to, at any point, just kind of change things. 
so that it makes things more interesting. Um, and this can be, you know, oh, uh, you know, you're the, they're fighting some some bizarre weird creature, and the game master just decides, and another one shows up, or the player characters are, you know, cl- climbing up a rope and. Uh, you know, up the side of a of a cliff, and the game master can just use GM intrusion and say, "Oh no, the rope breaks!" You know, and it's always kind of these things which just they don't screw the players over; they just make things more interesting. You know, it's kind of like a "now what do you do?" kind of thing, and that's built right into the mechanics. And the game master can do that, and when he does, he awards the players um, an experience point, and so. It, it's reflecting that the game master can, you know, guide the story however he he wants to to make it more interesting, and these complications are what drives the experience of the player. So they get an experience point that can they can then use to make their you know, improve their character later on or whatever. The Kickstarter campaign was quite successful. Could you tell us how much it raised? <laughs> Um, we raised about $517,000. That's all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were um, about 5,000 backers. And basically, we just, you know, we started with a goal of $20,000. And that was, that was admittedly, you know, intentionally low. Uh, it was just like the bare minimum that we could get by to publish, you know, one book. But what we did was after that, we, we set up a lot of stretch goals. You know, if we hit this amount, then we'll, we'll do X. And if we hit this amount, we'll do Y. And through that, basically what we did was we built a whole product line so that now Numenera is not just a, a single book, but there's a player's guide, there's going to be a, a bestiary, there's some adventures. And some of the, you know, Kickstarter supporters we're able to just go ahead and pledge enough money to, so they're going to just automatically get all of that stuff. So I think it's, you know, it's kind of a win-win for everybody. Yeah, it's kind of like pre-ordering something yeah. you're going to make. Yeah. Very uh, much. What's the release date for the game? Um, we're looking at um, right around the end of July of next year is when uh, the, the main book will come out. And then basically more products will follow immediately after. And what spawned the idea for the the game world, the the concept itself? You know, it's something that I've been sort of kicking around for a very, very long time. I've always been sort of interested in the idea of a world where where there was magic, but but in fact it was actually technology, but the people didn't realize it. There's a a, a fiction series. It's it's kind of old now. It's probably about twenty years old. Um, Maybe more, actually, now that I think about it. Um, but it was written by Gene Wolfe called uh, The Book of the New Sun. And in it, basically, you know, you start reading this book, and it seems like a fairly straightforward fantasy novel. But as you go on, you realize that it's not a fantasy novel. It's actually a science fiction novel. And that the things that the characters are encountering that seem like, you know, and, and to them are magic, actually our technology we're just seeing it through different eyes and that's i don't know that for some reason that that concept has always really stuck with me um and i'm sort of fascinated by kind of wild speculative science anyway um i'm i'm a big fan of you know reading science journals and whatnot 
to just not not necessarily to see what's going on now, but what the speculation for way in the future is. And so this is just a good excuse for me to read a lot of books and and <laughs> say, ooh, that would be cool, you know. In the game, is everyone human or are there other species? Well, so one of the interesting things about Numenera is that uh, it's so far in the future that it it kind of it, it kind of calls into question what a human really is because in this far far future you know there are uh things that have evolved um over the great amounts of time and and there have been in the past you know genetic experiments so you might have people who are walking around who you know don't look like everyone else at all because they are the descendants of of things that have been, you know, genetically engineered. You could have people who are, you know, have cybernetic parts and things like that. And, you know, it, it, it's, you know, what, what makes up a human is, is kind of called into question. Uh, but there are, to, to really answer your question, in the past of Numenera, again, you know, because so far in the future, there have been contact with alien species and things like that. And some of those are still around uh, on Earth, even though, you know, they no longer have the capability to get back to their to their homeworlds or, or, or rather it's it's the descendants of those creatures who, you know, maybe came here a long time ago when Earth was a part of a big galactic empire or something that is now long since passed. And so the 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 players have the opportunity to also play characters that aren't human at all is is actually the point I'm getting to. Cool. Can you give any examples? Um, actually, I'm still working on a lot of that. <laughs> um, but uh, one of them is a, for example, a race that has a lot of psychic powers that are kind of inherent within them. And uh, the interesting thing about them, I mean, because uh, that that by itself isn't all that interesting. We've we've seen that in science fiction plenty of times. The interesting thing about them is that their mere presence, uh, they're able to communicate like telepathically with each other, but um, it, but their psychic presence around them kind of creates this weird sort of psychic static in the minds of of creatures that aren't their race around them and. Um, weird things can kind of start to be triggered within the psychic static so that like you suddenly, um, you know, are, are experiencing weird memories that you long forgot and things like that just by being around them. That sounds interesting. Uh, so it sounds like there's a lot of story material in the world. Are you thinking about writing any, any, uh, novels? Too? Um, it's, it's, it's pretty likely. Um, I, I did, as part of the Kickstarter, um, I wrote uh, a short story for, for all the supporters. I'm probably going to be writing a few more uh, in the spring just as kind of something to tie people over, tied people over. But it's, it's pretty likely, like you said, it's, it's, it's a world filled with a lot of story potential. Uh, the game itself is very, very story-based, and there's just so many great ideas um, with this kind of material that I, I think it kind of lends itself really well. Now, another thing I wanted to talk to you about was your upcoming web series, Geek Seekers. Right, right. Something uh, very different. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? 
Sure. Um, Geek Seekers is is uh, a web series that I am doing with uh, actor Jen Page. Uh, Jen, probably best known for her role in Gamers 2, uh, Darkness Rising. Uh, she's also in the upcoming Gamers 3 movie, and and uh, she's done a lot of other sort of sort of geeky film work. And that's kind of the premise of it, is that there were both these big geeks, and we're both really interested in the paranormal. And so it's it's not a fictional web series. It's where it's it's a paranormal investigation, and we're we're really gonna go do it, right? We 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 have been. We we've already explored a supposedly haunted apartment building, and um, you know, we are talking in the future about maybe going down into the woods and looking for Bigfoot, and 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 actually doing these things, and and kind of going through the process of what it takes. And, you know, along the way, um, interjecting a lot of humor and uh, kind of a lot of silliness because we're geeks, right? And so that means that, you know, it's full of movie references and stuff like that, you know, because that's what happens when you get a couple of geeks together and start <laughs> start talking about ghosts. All of a sudden, everyone's quoting Ghostbusters over and over again. And I mean, it just happens, right? <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's a part of the series. But the, the premise is, is that, you know, this is the kind of thing that a lot of us geeks are interested in, and we're really going to give it a go and see what happens. Have you had anything interesting happen so far? Um, our first investigation, we did uh, we did have something kind of weird. We heard some weird voices and, and actually caught them on tape. You know, we uh, can't really explain it. Um, you know, it's not definitive or anything like that, but it's it's a pretty weird moment in the series. Do you believe in the paranormal or? I'm really actually very skeptical. Um, I'm one of those people I, I want to believe, you know, I want to live in a world where there's all those interesting things, but I also know enough about science and, and whatnot that I'm really very skeptical. Mm -hmm. How about Jen? Is she a she's skeptical a, also or more of a believer? Maybe a little bit more of a believer, but she's also, uh, you know, we, we approach things very much from a, a, a realistic point of view. When's that going to come out? I mean, what's the release date kind of plan? Um, so we're going to release the first two episodes at the same time, and that is hopefully going to be later this month. Oh, great. So how did you go from doing all these years of role-playing game writing and then some fiction writing to suddenly going, let's make a web series? You know, it sort of happened by accident. Uh, Jen and I were talking, we're friends, and well, the way it actually happened was we were... Uh, talking about there was a, a convention that we were talking about going to in Las Vegas and I was saying that um, I get kind of tired of I, I can't spend a really long amount of time in Vegas the casinos and the lights and the you know the slot machines and everything just kind of gets to me after a while and so uh, I was said you know what we could do is you know kind of half jokingly I said you know area 51 is out there somewhere you know we could just rent a car and go see if we could find it and she's, you know, laughed and said, yeah, we could film it. And, you know, sort of one thing led to another. And we were, you know, all these ideas started coming to our minds. And, you know, she has a lot more experience with with film and, and that kind of thing than I do. But I've done a little bit of work in that. And we, you know, just let's said, let's find a, you know somebody with a camera and let's let's give it a go. <laughs> For role playing games. So the role-playing game industry as a whole, mm -hmm. you know, we got 
fifth edition getting ready to come out, or it's in the works for for D and D, and then you have your game coming out. I know, like the open gaming license took a big, big hit after D twenty, you know, ended. But I mean, what do you see as the future of role playing games? Do you see more open gaming? Do you see more independent productions like yours? What do you think? What direction do you think we're heading to? Um, it seems as though there's still a, a number of companies that are making a go of putting out various games that kind of caters to different play styles. You know, there's people who want to use, you know, miniatures and have really tactical battles and, you know, really get into the number crunching. There's other people who want to, you know, focus more on the story. And I mean, I think that's great. And I, I think that that's a, that's a sign of a, of a healthy industry where we're not really focusing entirely just on one thing. You know, we've got, like you say, a uh, new edition of D&D, you know, on the horizon. Uh, there's a game which is <clears throat> based very heavily on third edition D&D, actually, um, that was created using the D20 system called Pathfinder, which is very, very popular. But then you've got, you know, you've, you've got like some old standby games like Call of Cthulhu and, uh, you know, other games which, you know, have been around for a long time. Then you've got a lot of new, interesting things. You know, there's a... There's a game called Savage Worlds. There's uh, Fate. So, you know, there's still a lot of really interesting innovation going on. It's difficult because I think what we're seeing is is that there's more and more difficulty in kind of figuring out the best way to get products from the creator to the consumer. You know, it's it's difficult. Game stores are... You know, there's still a lot of really good game stores out there, but some of those have kind of fallen on hard times. And, you know, some of those are focusing more on board games and other kinds of games than role-playing games now. So I see innovations like Kickstarter being really an interesting way that a creator like me can kind of communicate with and, and get ideas out immediately to gamers and, and have, you know, the nice thing about Kickstarter is, is that it allows gamers to have sort of a direct communication with creators too. You know, if, if for example, if I had pitched Numenera and nobody had really been interested in the Kickstarter, then I would know that it, it's not a product, you know, that anyone's interested in and I shouldn't bother with it. And because it was actually a very successful Kickstarter, I, I knew that it was a, it was an idea that was going to have some legs and was going to be worth doing. And so that, I think that, I think that that's a very interesting thing. I think we're going to see things kind of transform over the next few years in that way with different ways, you know, using the internet and using different things to a small, small game producer like myself can get his game out to a large number of people. It just wasn't possible. You know, like I said at the beginning, I've been doing this for 25 years and, you know, back in the day, the only way to sell your game was to sell it to a distributor who then sold it to a game store. And you never heard from customers. You didn't have any idea, you know, other than looking at sales figures, if people liked what you were doing, there was no feedback, there was no nothing. And it's very, very different today. And there's also PDF books. Do you think that's been a good move to to make PDF role-playing game books? Um, I do. Uh, I embraced that very, very early on with Melhavik Press. And, um, Havoc was actually one of the sort of the first companies to really uh, get into that and publish a lot of ebooks. 
And again, it's a really wonderful way for people to kind of find a new way to reach customers. Um, and then plus, you know, nowadays, you know, with iPads and tablets and everything, it's it's actually really, really convenient to have all your game material just right there with something that you can easily bring along to the game table. Yeah, I think that's a great innovation. What's up in the future for Monty Cook? What's, uh, I mean, you have your game, you have your web series, anything else coming up? Or? Um, well, like I said, I just released uh, the book of, uh, it's ebook only of uh, short fiction. I also, after the success of the Numenera Kickstarter, another writer friend of mine who had also just done a Kickstarter and had a lot of success with it, uh, her name is Shauna Germain, we got together and wrote a short kind of how-to book on Kickstarter called Kicking It. And uh, that's available now. You can get that on Amazon. But beyond that, you know, I'm uh, with all the with all the rewards and everything from the Numenera Kickstarter, I've got my work cut out for me for at least the next year or more, just creating all the products that uh, came out of the stretch goals and you know, all the things to support the game. So yeah, I've got a lot of a lot of work ahead of me. <laughs> Great. Well I look forward to your game. I look forward to Geek Seekers and I'll have to look up that kicking it. You know, I do a little bit of web series work and I'm really curious about Kickstarter. I know a lot of people are. More and more yeah. people are doing it. Yeah. It's uh I think it's really an idea whose time has come. Just so people can make sure they can find you. Where can they find your work on what website? Uh the best place to go is is just montycook.com. But if you're interested specifically in Numenera, um, we've also got a website for that, Numenera.com. How do you spell that? Uh, N-U-M-E-N-E-R-A.com. Hi, I'm R.A. Salvatore, Bob Salvatore. Been writing fantasy books for 25 years now and going strong, and you're listening to Genretainment. Special thanks to Monty Cook for speaking with us. We look forward to seeing his new game. I'm still amazed that his Kickstarter campaign raised over $500,000. Blows me away. <laughs> and he's a talented game designer, and the setting sounds really unique, so I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, now, we've got a few minutes left for the show. So let's chat for a few minutes. Uh, if you'd like to call in, you can call 347-308-8787. That's 347-308-8787. Now, it does look like we have a caller, and I'm pretty sure I know who this is. So let's get him on the line. Hey, hey how are you doing, Matt? How you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm not. I'm not too bad. I'm. I'm pretty excited about uh, about, about tomorrow's show. But your show is very good. It's very interesting. Listening to uh, Monty Cook talk about games and and stuff like that, and uh, raising five hundred thousand dollars, you know, uh, for reality on demand. Oh, sorry, you didn't do it for reality on demand. You did it for games. Sorry about that. No, darn, I know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know if I think Gamers Three is one of the top uh, Kickstarter raisers for films, if not the top one. And it was like three hundred thousand. So he actually beat out most films. So it's a that's a role playing game, you know, pen yeah. and paper RPG. So it's it's amazing. It's really it's really it's really weird because um, you know uh, you know Chase Masterson and uh, well, she had an Indiegogo campaign for a film that she's producing with James Kerwin called Are You Are, 
and it didn't hit its target. And, you know, they weren't really after all that much in comparison to what, you know, Cup raised. They, they were well, only after like a few thousand dollars. It's strange. Well, what's funny is, is Monty Cook was only asking for somewhere between twenty to 50000 I think, at the most. I'm thinking twenty, but I could be wrong. So he kept making stretch goals, you know, saying that, hey, you know, if, if I get this much more, I'll make another book, or I'll make this, or I'll give you this perk. And it just built and built and built to that amazing amount. And and if people are listening and they're curious, they're going to want to do a Kickstarter. Like he mentioned in the in the interview, he did co-write a book about kickstarting. So might want to check that out. Maybe uh maybe you have some good tips to share. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, do you mind if I come up tomorrow's show because we've got a we've got a show we've got SFP now coming on tomorrow. We've got a pretty big show coming up. Very cool. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, we basically tomorrow we have a show which is basically spotlighting a lot of the new up and coming talent in British comics, and uh, it's going to be topped off with an interview with uh, David Hyde and Doug Braithwaite about their new comic book, which is called Storm Dogs. But joining us also will be uh, Chris Wildgoose and Benjamin Reed, who will be discussing uh, a new comic book they were actually previewing at Thought Bubble, which is called Porcelain. Um, a gothic fairy tale, which is kind of like uh, they basically the title pretty much says it all. Gothic horror tale. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's it's gothic fairy tale, and um, you know, I've got the uh, I've got the comic from them. They they actually uh, gave me a preview issue and signed it for me, and it, the artwork in it looks fantastic. And it's called Parsonin the uh, Parsonin a gothic fairy tale. We also have Richard Worth and Jordan Coover. To uh, talk about their comic book, which is called Ladies and Gentlemen, which is which is kind of like a, a steampunk uh, Victoriana sort of like comic. It's it's actually proven very popular. It you know sort of came out um, um, late last year, and it just mm-hmm. sort of like they they still sang it issue two at Fort Bubble, and it's sort of like it's it's proven very successful in here in the UK. So they'll be talking about that. We have Stuart Gould, who's sort of like. Uh, well, he's more sales ring, but basically he's talk. He's going to be talking about um, his plans to open up a distribution avenue for independent comics. Because basically, you know, with Diamond, who distribute all the comics at the moment, who've got the monopoly, they do fine job of distributing sort of Marvel and DC and stuff like that. But they they don't do so hot at distributing the independent creators. So this guy's stepping in and he's looking to sort of like. Uh, open up a distribution avenue for independent creators. Mm-hmm. And nice. we also have uh, we also have Dan Thompson, who's going to be talking about uh, his comic book, Moon. Uh, two issues of that have been out. And basically what Moon is, it's basically uh, what the moon gets up to during the day. During the night, he's up <laughs> in the sky, sort of like sort of thing. But during the day, he's actually out fighting ridiculous crime. Oh, really? <laughs> so he's a crime fighter during the day and, and the moon during the night. So <laughs> we're going to be talking about that. It's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool book. I've actually got both issues. It's quite, quite a fun read. Um, what kind of powers and, does the moon have? <laughs> oh, that'd be giving it away. <laughs> um, and we also have Steve Tanner, who I spoke to uh, last year. Um, I did a catch-up interview with him and, and uh he talks us through a few of the new uh, new comics that uh, Time Bomb Comics have put out, um, and and basically sort of like talks to me about uh, his new Dick Turpin comic. Now, 
before you start, Dick Turpin was actually a highwayman here in the UK. He's basically a crook, but because of the way he saw sort of like walked up to the uh, to the gallows and um, and was drinking wine and chatting to the uh, you know to, to the gallows keeper when he died, he became somewhat of a legend here in the UK. As in, although he was an outlaw, people kind of like thought of him as kind of heroic, heroic, <laughs> because he was drinking wine, you know. Even even when he was walking walking up to his death, he was called Dick. Dick obviously is short for Richard, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> in in the comic he's kind of like the heroic Dick Turpin, and um, in the first issue that he fought vampires or some no he fought zombies. In this one he takes on a group of vampire vampire prostitutes, so <laughs> that was pretty cool. But... <laughs> Uh, and we top all that off with uh, David Hine and Doug Braithwaite talking about uh, Storm Dogs, which is out through Image Very Comics cool. now. Yeah, sounds like it's going to be uh, British Comics 101. Although Storm Dogs is with Image, but uh, yeah, but both the run down on crea- both the creators of Storm Dogs are actually British. Mm-hmm. You got David Hine, British writer. You got Doug Braithwaite, who's sort of like a British artist, but you know basically he's done a lot of stuff with Marvel and DC, so. Yeah, and he's really two guys. He's an incredibly quiet guy as well, but really nice. So. Very cool. Um, I look forward to it. And that's tomorrow, right? That's tomorrow at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. All right. Well, what else can we talk about? We have a few more minutes. Uh, I know something that just came out that you know people are probably love or hate, the new Star Trek trailer. Oh, man, that sucked. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that's the worst trailer ever, you know? Since when? Since when has Captain Kirk been a transvestite? Be come on. A transvestite. <laughs> I missed that part. Or that, when did that happen? <laughs> oh, 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 I'm sorry. I must be watching the wrong trailer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what trailers you're watching. Hmm. Well, what did you really think of the trailer? Um, like, it's it, like... in a word, wow! I mean, so like, um, it's so much more exciting than the trailer that we had for the first movie. Although, you know, the trailer that we had for the first movie now, when you look back, was really good and represents the first movie. This trailer is telling me that the second movie is going to be so much more epic. Mm-hmm. I liked the trailer, and when I saw it really late at night, I was really excited, and I'm still excited about it. But uh, <laughs> my one gripe about it is I feel like there's this new trend of trailers that are like copying off each other format-wise. Batman Rising, or Batman Rises, or excuse me, Dark Knight Rises, and uh, and then Iron Man 3, and now this, you know, this like voiceover, I'm a big bad, I'm going to take your world and destroy it all, and look at these cool explosions. You know, I started to realize this reminds me of that trailer and Iron Man 3, and kind of disappointed about that. Yeah, I, I think in a way get coming from there. I mean, but then again, what you can do is you can start opening your genre entertainment show with "Welcome to genre entertainment. We're going to destroy you all." <laughs> you think you're safe? Uh, I'll show you all <laughs> my revenge. <laughs> your ears will be uh, by the end of this show. <laughs> <laughs> Except I'll do it muffled, like Bane, and you will—you just won't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Like that's an interesting mumbled part in the first minute. I don't know. Okay. What's that about Wayne? <laughs> oh, Bane. Sorry. Bane. Uh, <laughs> but no, I 
who you think he is. Uh, you know, if people were saying Khan, I'm thinking Gary Mitchell. I, I don't know. What do you think? I think Gary Mitchell. I mean, it's um, you know, I was talking to uh, our friend Jason this afternoon, who did Drifter, and uh, you know, I've not watched his new new his new web series yet, so I must check that out. But I was speaking to him this afternoon, and basically, uh, you've got the blonde woman in it, and um, she she could very well be Doctor Elizabeth Dana, um, mm-hmm. who, if I recall, was I can't remember the name of the actress, but you know, um, but she she also had a telekinetic powers, and I think it's Gary Mitchell because in, even in that episode uh, where no man has gone before, he, he actually did hint that he had a starship hidden away somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think it is. Um, when I first watched it, I thought, you know, everyone was saying con, and I thought, well, that could explain the martial art moves and stuff and whatever. But then the more I thought about it and I looked back and watched it again a few times, you see, like, Kirk or, uh, like, two children running to a cliff, and, you know, one's blonde, one's dark-haired, which would hint to maybe, you know, two childhood friends, and uh, which would played perfectly with Jerry Mitchell. You know, and then the blonde could be that too. So I think that's probably where we're going at, especially since I didn't see any armies or anything, which Khan would have to have armies. He's, I mean, he's a super soldier, but not that super. But Gary Mitchell could tear up the Federation by himself. There's two ways that could go with it as well. If you remember, you know, this new this newer Star Trek is it, set in a, new, a whole new universe. It's kind of like rebooted. Although you do have Spock, who's a carryover from the from the old Star Trek universe. So you could have Gary Mitchell who's jumped into this universe from the old one, or it could be it could be an entirely new Gary Mitchell. It depends on how they set it all up. I hope they do new. I mean, I, I like the parallel universe element to help kind of explain the new reboot and still give appreciation and say that could still exist another timeline, you know, to the to the old fans. Like, I appreciate that. I think that was clever to do that if they're going to reboot it. But I don't think they should keep playing that card over and over again. I think they need to have it stand on its own. If it's going to stand as a, a franchise, the timeline I think really needs to move forward, you know, by itself. I think if they keep playing that card over and over again, it's going to get really old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. Uh, but I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to going to see it. I think we're about getting there to the end of the show. We just have like a few minutes left. So I'm glad you called in, Ian, and uh, I'm going to check out your show tomorrow. I hope everyone else does. Cool. Well, you know, my cat's uh, right next door to me, and I'm just holding this poor up in the air. Oh, it just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> it, All right, well. Out cold. Well, let me go ahead and, and pitch. Let me do my blurb about our shows for next week real quick. You know, check back next Thursday, or excuse me, next Tuesday, when we speak with producers and actors Stephanie Thorpe and Paula Rhodes. They recently acquired the rights to the 35-year-old comic book series ElfQuest from Warner Brothers. Uh, now they grabbed a lot of attention on the web when they made ElfQuest a fan reimagining, and now I think they're going to make a lot more buzz uh, as they move forward with an official ElfQuest, official ElfQuest stories, whatever form that takes. And we're going to talk more about that with them. And plus their extensive work in a wide range of web series. They've been all over the place. Also next week, we'll be speaking to Barry Dodd, the co-creator of the popular Maine-based web series Ragged Isle. We learn more about this mystery suspense web series and talk to Dodd about his views of the future of independent web series. And before I forget, we also have Joe Wilson, the creator of the popular independent TV series Vampire Mob, on the show live on December 18th at 4 p.m. Pacific. 
Now, uh, his show has a very talented cast with actors from Twin Peaks, Boardwalk Empire, and Sopranos. So if you have a question for Wilson, be sure to call in on that show on December 18th at uh, 4 p.m. Pacific. So that's it for today's Genretainment. So join us back right here on this channel at SciFiPulseRadio.com next week on Tuesday and Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific. And, of course, you can listen to any of our past episodes by searching the archives. Not to be confused with MDB Media, folks. (laughs) Well, until next time. 